You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Douglas Murray. Douglas, thank you very much indeed for your time. And it's, it's some inconvenience to yourself, so I doubly appreciate it. Um, no, it's a great pleasure. I want to begin in an unusual place. Given the challenges before us, the key to making it or not might lie in our courage. It's my view that you have displayed enormous courage. Now, there's moral courage and there's physical courage. So my father in the 9th Division, big pushback against Rommel. Rommel referred to them as the bravest and most capable fighting men the British Empire had ever produced. I'm pretty proud of that as an Australian. Yeah, so That's physical courage. So you should be very proud. But then there's, there's, there's moral and mental courage. I don't want to sound cheesy, but you've displayed it in vast quantities, both really. Uh, what drives your willingness to take tough positions that are frankly dangerous? in the strange world we live in? It's a very personal question, um, sure. but it's an important one. Um, well, it's my view that there are a variety of versions of your life which, that you, which you can play at any moment. Um, there is the life of hiding what you think or believe. There's the one of repeating mantras other people repeat. Um, and there's a certain attraction to that second one in particular because you know how things are going to go. If you just go along with every lie that your era says, you, you have examples of where you might be. You might end up a good, low-grade, functioning civil servant, for instance, or you might end up a producer of documentary films or whatever. You might, you might end up in some left-wing profession and highly thought of by your peers, but it wouldn't be your life. It wouldn't be your life at all. It's someone else's life. It's, it's a life off the shelf. I'll say those things and I'll become that person. Uh, the exciting thing about not doing that is um, if you just say things as you see them, which is what I've always done, for better or for worse, um, it's never entirely clear what the next step looks like never entirely clear what the path ahead looks like, although you can have some guesses. But at least it's my life. At least I'm living it. It's mine. And I much urge other people to take this approach as well. There are some downsides in terms of, let's say, security of your life, of predictability of your life. But also, who wants a predictable life? Um, Jordan Peterson and I have been talking about this a lot recently. The way I'd frame it is, if, as if, you, if you avoid going off into just repeating the mantras and having the a la carte uh, life, if you avoid that, then your life will be an adventure, as mine has been. And so far, it's been a very exciting adventure, one I've enjoyed enormously. And, uh, enjoy enormously and have what's more the pleasure of other people telling me that I've helped them. And that's, that's one of the best things you can get is young people, old people, people of any age, background, saying that you've given them encouragement or helped them to say what they think. 
to say truths that they've intuited. So that's the closest I can come to an answer, inadequate as it is. It's important. Let me just take a couple of things out of that. I know from five or six years' experience now, this video podcast series, that back in Australia, and not just in Australia, there'll be a trickle of younger people who come through saying, hey, that, what Douglas just said is important and I want to show some courage, but it's really hard because I'm going to get cancelled. Or I'm in a workplace where my livelihood might be up for grabs. Mm. Uh, and, and that's very real for a lot of people. Mm. You and I can be cancelled and have been, and it doesn't matter much, I suppose. I've never been cancelled. <laughs> well, perhaps I haven't either, but it wouldn't matter. You probably wouldn't even know, Douglas, because you've got your own platform. I wouldn't even Very buy. different for a young person who wants to make a difference. Yes, that's true. But again, you go back to this thing of... Um, look, the, the people that are in a really bad position in that way are people who have already organized their lives along that predictable trajectory I just said and have spent their time keeping their heads down and believe that someday, perhaps when they retire, perhaps when they have sufficient money, perhaps when they've paid off a mortgage, they'll suddenly start saying what they think. Might be a bit late. Might be a bit late by then. Yeah. Because you'll have had your life. I mean, it's not just for the individual, if I can say so. Mm. Our culture needs heroes now as never oh, before. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and so, so that's the first thing is, are you sure that if you put it off, there will be a day when you have the grand reveal of the real you? Uh, it's not my observation that that no. often happens. Um, as for young people starting off, obviously it's not for me to advocate acts of moral kamikaze courage, but um, I think it is the case that you should be careful uh, um, certainly don't say things you don't mean or overstate them for effect or anything like that. But, but to do, and, and, and we're not even talking, we don't need to talk about people with platforms, just people in their lives. Um, is it better if you're a young person starting off to be in a relationship with somebody who says the same contemptibly predictable things as you, which you don't believe and she or he may not believe either? Is it is it a good thing to be in a relationship where you're both lying to each other about your beliefs? Almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. Is it a good idea to go into a profession where you do things that you are um, not proud of, which make you feel smaller and callow? Probably not. Almost certainly not. So... I would say the thing to do, and it's the same thing with friends, by the way. Sometimes um, people say to me, no, my friends don't listen to me when I talk or they don't seem to care. I say, if you've got to find different friends. You know, you've got to find friends who value you. You've got to. You shouldn't be around people who don't value you because then you'll end up not valuing yourself either. Um, so I would say start on the adventure of your life as soon as you can, <laughs> and it'll be wonderful. Well, that does, it leads into uh, another question then, uh, just briefly, uh, which is, given that you have been warning with extraordinary clear, uh, clarity for some time now, the adventure of your lifetime, being bold enough to tell us we really need to wake up to ourselves, do you see any evidence that people 
are moving. You and I have just been involved a bit uh, with uh, the Alliance of Responsible Citizens Conference here in London. That was extraordinary in the sense that you had mm. 1,500 people coming together. They listened to every lecture across mm. the broad themes of human flourishing and our story of banking and commerce and uh, energy and the environment. Mm. And there seemed to be a tremendous appetite do you sense a movement, uh, you know, an, an insistence from enough quarters with enough gravity to start to recenter us, or are we just oh, headlong no. down the road of secular individualism, selfishness? You know. No, I mean, no, of course not. I mean, the, the, the conference you referred to on the last night, as you know, Jordan um, and Jordan Longborg, uh, Jonathan Pajo, and I um, took to the stage of the O2 Arena in London, which is the biggest arena in the UK usually used for Beyonce and Madonna and things. So it's always quite funny when Jordan and I are on the listing. Um, but uh, we had, I think, 14,000 people in the arena. And I would submit that most of our critics uh, can't get a crowd that size because um, who would want to turn up to listen to the bitterness and the failures that they lay out for your life? Um, I'm very moved by the youth of audiences who turn out, yep. the ambition. You see, the thing that I think is changing is that pe people, people who are majority populations in the West, and minorities as well, but, but crucially majority populations, have been effectively told to be smaller, yep. dampen themselves down, restrain themselves, make themselves small, shriveled little beings and go through life and don't leave a carbon footprint and die in a carbon-neutral manner, which isn't a very appealing life. No, it's not. And young men in particular, young women as well, I think are rebelling against that. High time, high time. But I think they're rebelling against that. They're rightly saying, I sense I'm more than that. And I have more than that in me. And I don't want to restrain it. I want to run with it. And they want to know how. They, want, they need guidance from a range of people. There'll be a large range of people who they must seek guidance from in their lives. But, but I sense that that era of harmlessness being the greatest virtue, just being a harmless, shriveled individual, is not appealing. And it is not working on the smartest people coming up. And if I have a source of hopefulness, it is that, that the people coming up are, um, they're really smart. They've seen through the era. There's a really important point here, and we've just had it highlighted in Australia. We had a vote about yeah. the idea of entrenching a group privilege in the Constitution. And everyone said, you're, you know, the elite said, you're a racist if you don't support this. We've mm. got to honour the original. And I think Australians do want to honour. I really do. Uh, but the, it was overwhelmingly rejected, despite the government, despite big business, despite mm. sporting codes, a lot of the churches, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone into saying, you know, you've got to support this. And the people said, no. And no. The, but, but it's important to understand why they said no. Mm. They said no because they recognised that this was an attempt to divide, yes. to create a special yeah. class, to perpetuate a grievance mentality. Why lock it in the Constitution forever mm. if the objective is to close the gap and draw people together? Yeah. 
you lock it into the constitution so you can keep the grievance industry alive yeah. and a gravy train arrive, uh, uh, you know, in place. Yeah. Sorry to be crude, because here's the point. The Australian people, I think, did something actually quite noble. They said, no, this is divisive. Mm. And they voted against it because they thought it would divide us. It was a wonderful result. I wrote a piece for the Australian in the weeks running up to it in which I said, there's a very simple calibration you have to make, which is broadly speaking, are you pleased that Australia is here or not? Are you pleased that you have the society you have or not? Uh, do you feel gratitude that you have it? Or do you think that it would have been best if indigenous peoples had been left to their own devices and Europeans had never found Australia? Um, if you do think the latter, then, you know, you can live your life like that if you want. But my, I was so pleased with the result because it showed that there was that core of Australian sense common sense and pride, legitimate pride, that the nation was a force for good, is a force for good in the world, that Australia has been a force for good in the world and therefore must not be dismantled along the lines that were being suggested or any other lines. I thought it was a wonderful result. Um, great, and the fact that the, fact that the uh, various people lined up uh, to just dismiss anyone voting uh, to say no to this as being a racist, I'm afraid just goes to show that all those people have basically hyperinflated the currency of their language so high that it's no longer, I mean, if somebody says, you know, the Australian public are racist, well, no, it's just, <laughs> you fool. There's so much to explore here. You see, uh, what's really striking, and you, some of them were incredibly open. They've got, they've got no sense of proportional modesty, some of these people. They say, oh, but the people with high education and, and, and high wealth, uh, they're supporting this. In other words, you're deplorable and you're ignorant. And all you people out there on the coalface who actually know how this stuff works out, mm. because the more Indigenous people and the more people mm. interacted on the ground, the more people were actually voting, <coughs> no, we don't want division. But the elites wanted division because mm. that would be to end racism somehow. Yeah. What does this say, Douglas, about the disconnect, if I can put it this way, between intelligence and education and, and wisdom and practicality in our modern culture? Uh, well, I mean, everyone has access to lots of information and there's not very much wisdom. Um, uh, my, own, my own feeling is that there's... Um, each country has a sort of version of what uh, de Gaulle called the France profonde, the, 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 the deep France. I think, that, I think that exists in every country. It's an extraordinary, important and resonant phrase. I think there's a deep Australia, you know, deep sense of self, which when it's tapped into, you get the right thing. Um, I think that Britain has a deep Britain within it, which is certain things you can touch on, which really bring us out, bring out the depths of the national spirit and character and say, actually, we've been good. We've been a good force in the world, by and large. We're rather proud of it. Mm. Uh, I think that, I think every country has some version of it. Some of us have, some of us have it more legitimately than others. And this isn't to say, uh, you know, you should, cover over or ignore anything in the past you're not proud of. But 
you, you, you can't run a society on um, regret and, and self-flagellation involved as well, surely. Yeah. So if you're a Brit, I come over here as, you know, as a colonial, and, and I find Brits saying to me, oh, you know, our original sin, we were colonisers and, and we had an empire. And you can point to things that might have been done better, no doubt about that. You can, point, you can point to horror moments. But why would you not be aware, for example, that it was the only, the first empire, really the only empire, that voluntarily decided to end slavery? No. Inconveniently, that charge was led by privileged white, Christian, whatever. Yeah, the charge to abolish slavery was not led by the black Africans who were doing so well stealing their neighbours. Uh, well, that's a relevant point. That's a very relevant point. But there's another one. If you're going to really objectively decide whether empire was a good or a bad thing, the fact of the matter is that Britain did it when it was the superpower of the nation, abolished mm. trade, then slavery itself. Then it sent its Royal Navy out onto the seas to end it. Nobody else could have ended it. Now, we have no. slavery back in a modern form, and nobody seems to pay that enough attention. No. You've got this magnificent new film on it, yeah. and all the media can do is say, oh, we think it was put together by right-wingers. Not let's go and save the children. Mm. But, but, but my point is, what is it about us that we can't understand that, you know, that, 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 that we're all a mixture of good and bad and that yeah. there's an upside and something to be proud of in terms of what the British in particular did when they ruled the waves? Well, it wasn't my, all I mean, downside. My f the first thing is, is I mean, none of it is changeable is the first thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? So the more time you spend worrying about the past, the less you're fixing I, today's issues. Yeah, I mean, what, what are you meant to do about it? As my late friend Clive James once said, uh, you know, we're here because history happened. Mm. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about, I don't know, the bombing of Dresden or Nagasaki, to use a couple of recent examples? What are you going to do about it? Cringe about it? Be, be powerless because of it? Be endlessly apologetic because of it? Why? What good would it do? Who would it bring back? Who would it placate? So the first thing is the whole thing is in, in many ways simply pointless. Mm. The second thing is that obviously we've been through this period where what happens is Western democracies are expected to endlessly self-flagellate about our pasts. And it's some kind of maybe you could say overcorrection towards this a certain view of the past that was prevalent, let's say, in the late 19th century. Okay. Um, well, as you say, first of all, we need a more balanced approach. And secondly, we're not doing this just to ourselves. I'm not having that anymore. Absolutely not. Is one, uh, is one allowed to swear slightly on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Can I just say... Go ahead. Australians will understand. Okay, look. What we're wading through is a pile of horse shit, okay? <laughs> Sounds like you've done it personally at some stage. I have, by the I, way. I, it's pretty, pretty poor. I get the, I get the point of yeah, it. Yeah, and you get the, it's not a metaphor. It's no fun. It's, it's, no it's fun. not very productive. It's not to be recommended. It's not to be sought out. Um, we are wading through this because, and I can tell you how you get out of it, among other things, which is to say, I'm sorry, who, who were the Maoris, historically? Were they men and women of peace who sat around idyllically farming and having an idenically civilized life? Or were they brutal, brutal people 
who did terrible things to each other and to people they met. The trade in decapitated human heads, human heads as a tool of bartering to buy goods, including muskets by the early 1800s. I'm sorry, I'm not willing to have my own culture ransacked and turned through this lens of pure evil and simultaneously be expected to pretend that the Maoris or the indigenous people of Australia were these proto-Gandhi-esque figures, sort of Mother Teresa with a bit too much beheading. No, no, this is totally untrue. And it's, and it's an obvious, obvious attempt to subjugate people in the West to a false ideology and a false version of our own past. So no, I mean, all of the, all of the sort of, the, the combination of the two of these things, the wild distortion of Western history, the negative interpretation of all of Western history is bad on its own, but combined with this Edenic Vaseline lens interpretation of everyone else, no. No, you might just about get away with one of those things, but not both, and not both at the same time. No way. It leads us straight then to the horrible global instability that we're facing at the moment. Perhaps no more, um, if you like, uh, uh, pointed than what we're seeing with what Hamas is doing. Uh, and the great clash, it has to be said, really between the fundamental values of the West and radical Islam in particular. Now, you talked about the deep psyche of Australians. You could talk about the deep psyche of the British. You referred to how mm -hmm. it's stirring and they're saying, mm -hmm. you know, hang on, we're, we're being mischaracterised mm -hmm. and what have you. Mm -hmm. and, and that came out in Australia. But waves and waves and waves of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Let's be really honest about this. Some of them do not share our values. Oh, many all. of them, very large numbers. Many of them don't believe in democracy. They believe mm -hmm. in theocracy. Mm -hmm. And we wonder what sort of Theo it is, mm -hmm. frankly, that's driving them. Mm -hmm. You've had a lot to say about this. Um, the, and, and, and Constantine Kisson at the same conference brilliantly said, we thought the barbarians were at the gate. Turns out that quite a number of them have got through the gate oh, yeah. and they're in our midst. Oh yeah. They've been through the gate for a long time. We just haven't known what to do about it. Um, I think that uh, as the situation is changing, actually, I think there are things now able to be discussed and um, suggested which were not able to be suggested or discussed even a few years ago. My view is that, I mean, for instance, there's a, there's a sort of uh, idiot um, conversation you can have when it comes to these things, which consists of something like the following. Mm. I would say, if this is a bit of a typical BBC question for you, you see, I'd say, John Anderson, but how do we, how do we balance the, the, the issues between a liberal society and then illiberalism on the other hand? We've had 20 years of that. We've had 20 years of these silly games and navel-gazing parlour games. Uh, it's too late to keep playing those games. We have... Uh, thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people in the UK who have no love at all for the UK, but yet live here. 
I don't want them to live here. I don't want them here. They came under false pretenses. Many of them came illegally and continue to come illegally. And we don't want them here. And I'm perfectly willing to say that because it needs to be said. If I hated Australia, hated the Australian people, hated Australian history, hated the Australian way of life, broke into the country illegally and spent my time trying to undermine Australia, why should I be in Australia? Why? What would I have brought the country? What benefit? What moral benefit? What financial benefit? What social benefit? The answer is, you'd have brought no benefit. So why, why just hope that those people are not in large enough numbers and keep your fingers crossed and put it off for another day? I think we have to start saying very clearly, if you don't like it here, go. And if you don't like it here and you intend to make it worse, we will make you go. We stripped citizenship from ISIS members, members of ISIS who, even if they had British citizenship, we stripped their passports. We need to start doing the same thing with Hamas. We have Hamas leaders in the UK, Hamas members in the UK. I'm calling on the Foreign Secretary, the Home Secretary, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the Attorney General, Prime Minister and others to start doing this, to start taking the passports away and deporting people who support Hamas in the UK. Is there the willpower to listen? If they don't listen now, somebody else will down the line. Because you were warning in 2017 about the strange death of Europe. Yes. You're now warning it's time to get absolutely real and hard-nosed. Is, is that yes, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we have a couple of choices, clearly, at this point. W one of them is, and I say this metaphorically for the time being, but it's not that metaphorical. One is to stand up, and the other is to beg on your knees. Um, I don't think that the British public should be on their knees begging, um, particularly not to people who dislike them. Um, so, best to be on your feet. You'll be well aware, and we can come back to what's happening on this side of the world, Everybody, my fellow Australians need to know this, the whole world is aware that in New South Wales when the Israeli flag was splashed across the Opera House, there were hideous protests. Mm. Uh, we had uh, certain people running around saying, gas the Jews, mm -hmm. come back to that in a moment, um, all sorts of hate language for which in any other context you'd have been dragged off in your pyjamas mm -hmm. and taken to jail. Have any of them been arrested? Uh, not that I'm aware of as I sit here. I, I not absolutely can't, but I don't think so. I haven't heard of it. Um, uh, and then you had, uh, you know, senior Oman saying there are tears flowing down my face with joy that this has been launched. Why, why doesn't he get chucked out of Australia? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. Send him to Gaza. Let's see what happens. Send him to Gaza. He can have um, tears streaming down his face in Gaza. Let's explore some of this a little bit more. One of the things that Henry Ergas wrote in The Australian, now he's a, a, a top-class mind. I've never known a man so deeply mm. steeped in learning as he is. He made a really interesting observation. He said, the Nazis had sufficient sense of shame to try and hide what they mm. were doing when they were gassing the Jews mm. and shooting them, dropping them into trenches. Now we're prepared to side with people who don't even have a sense of shame about the butchering of women and children. Yesterday I watched the raw footage about an hour 
of the... How did you bring yourself to do that? I was invited to see the raw footage on the 7th of October massacres, and um, I've seen quite a lot in war zones I've covered, uh, in the flesh as well as in uh, sometimes being shown video atrocities. Um, I think what I saw yesterday is um, by some margin worse than anything I've seen before. And I've been in Nigerian villages when the when a suicide bomber goes into the church on a Sunday and blows everyone up, and then people chase people through the fields, shooting them. I've seen enough exit wounds from children's bodies, but the. Uh, the footage of the 7th of October is a level of depravity that, yes, not even the Nazis did. Because the whole time they're massacring, um, and I think the film was about, we saw about 10% of all the bodies that uh, Hamas, uh, the people that Hamas killed that day. Um, throughout the whole thing, the Hamas fighters are in a state of Utter elation. Utter elation. Were the Nazis in a state of utter elation you know, the as they gassed the Jews? Even the descriptions of the Einsatzgruppen, who were shooting Jews in the back of the head in trenches, to fall into mm -hmm. trenches, grave pits that they'd made the Jews uh, dig for themselves. Even when you read the accounts, both from the very, very few survivors and from those who witnessed it and those who partook in it, say that the soldiers had to, um, had to actually be weirdly enough protected from their acts by getting incredibly drunk in the evenings yeah. and being, trying to forget what they've been made to do. Um, the Hamas, uh, terrorists are, are utterly elated and delighted by what they're doing. Uh, I, I said this yesterday, but I'm, um, I really don't want to hear Allah Akbar shouted again on my streets. It's a war cry. Uh, the Hamas terrorists are shouting Allah Akbar all the way through, all the way through, as they are using a shovel to decapitate a young man. With every blow of the shovel, they shout Allah Akbar when they go in to rape and um, murder all these young women in a room, they're shouting Allah Akbar the whole time and they find a young woman hiding under a table, pretending to be dead and they realize she's alive and they begin killing her. They're shouting Allah Akbar all the time and they're so elated. And they phone home. We've got the telephone calls now. They phone home one, one disgusting young Hamas guy shouts, shouts from the phone of one of his victims, his father in Gaza, saying, I have killed with my own hands 10 Jews. Your son has killed 10 Jews. And the mother is put on the phone and they're all shouting Allah Akbar and they're so proud of him. Indescribable. That's what we're facing. And so when, when the world sees hundreds of thousands of Muslims marching against Israeli actions in the Gaza. Uh, they've, they either agree with what Hamas did and like it, and an awful lot do, 
we have an awful lot of predominantly Muslims in Australia, Britain, Europe, America, who like what I've just described. They're on board with it, and they'd like to do it to the seven to eight million Israelis. Um, so people either like that and want it, or they're totally ignorant of this, or they think that in the wake of that, um, the Israelis should just simply sit back, take it. And I don't think... Or if they must respond, it should be proportional. Which, as I always say, as I said in the week since the massacre, would mean that the Israelis should go in and, for instance, take a shovel and behead a young Palestinian man for every Israeli man. Do they really think, does anyone really think that's what would happen? That would be proportional. Proportional would be a group of Israeli soldiers finding precisely the number of young women in the Gaza that the Palestinians found in uh, the south of Israel and raping precisely the same number of women and then abducting them into Israel and spitting on their bodies and much more. And rounding that's up not a six-year-old boy. And that's the, not what the Israelis are going to do. That's not what they're doing. Um, besides which, and I have to say this, I'm so fed up of the double standards on all of this. Um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Muslims have been killed in the last 12 years by Bashar al-Assad and other Muslims in the civil war in Syria. There's no one on the streets of Sydney or Melbourne. There's no one on the streets of London. We have seen hundreds of thousands of people killed in the last decade in Yemen, Muslims being killed. There's no one on the streets of Melbourne. Nobody is standing outside the Sydney Opera House calling gas the Hutu or gas the Houthi, gas the Shia, gas the... Nobody's marching for the dead Muslims in Yemen. Their co-religionists, we're always told about, care so much about their co-religionists, don't give a damn about their co-religionists. They really don't. Muslims do not love other Muslims. They have no love for them. They have no love for the Palestinian peoples, none. If they had any, the Jordanians would have taken in the West Bank Palestinians, the Egyptians would have taken in the, 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 the territory they used to run, the Gaza, and own the Gaza, and they would have taken in the Palestinians from the Gaza. Why have the Egyptians made sure that not one uh, Palestinian is allowed to leave Gaza? Why, why do they make sure that their border wall is tough as anything? What do they mind? One thing, Jews living. Jews living and Jews winning. It hits them deep in their soul, in their psyche. It's an ancient, ancient hatred. Perhaps the most ancient among the monotheisms. And uh, the deepest and the ugliest, the nastiest. And the one that has been least addressed. And we've imported it. Part of that importation, you've touched on it. Another ABB, ABC or BBC type sort of anguishing question is, oh, don't we have to differentiate between mm. the moderates and the extremists? Mm. To which I'm afraid my response must be, well, show some courage, moderates. Sure. Stand up, condemn this. Okay. Have you seen any yes. of that in Britain? Not much. Um, quite a lot of so-called 
moderate Muslims that I've known in the UK over the years, including very good friends of mine, always split when it comes to the issue of Israel being involved in anything. Uh, but Israel and, um, you know, uh, you can criticize Israel without being anti-Jewish, they say. Yeah, you not really. Not really, I think. I mean, it's a very, you can criticize it, but to only criticize Israel. I mean, as we sit here, um, roughly the same populations, population of the Gaza is being forcibly moved by the government of Pakistan. Almost two million Muslims are being moved by the Pakistani authorities into Afghanistan. Okay, we have a very large Pakistani community here in the UK. If their country of origin can do that, why can't we? If it comes to that, if it comes to that, if it has to come to that. Um, why does nobody notice this? Why is nobody saying this is an appalling war crime by the Pakistani government? Well, only because there are so many Pakistani politicians and others in the UK and other countries who have a deep, a deep uh, a connection to their country of origin and would never want to, uh, to see it looked at in a bad way. Um, they will not criticize that. They haven't said a word about that. Um, so, no, I think that if you are zoning in, zooming in on Israel, lambasting Israel, and are basically not bothered with everything else in the world, you're not, you're not motivated by anything other than being anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. Um, of course, and, and it just has to be said. I mean, I've said this so many times that I, I tire myself with it, but it's necessary to say anti-Semitism is a shapeshifter. It's a shapeshifting virus. It can come from anywhere. At times in the past, it was the case that people didn't like Jews because they were seen to be a different religion and, and strange and different, and so they were hated for their religion. Then after the wars of religion, you couldn't hate anyone for their religion, so people started to hate the Jews for their race. And after the Holocaust, you couldn't hate people because of their race anymore. So people hated the Jews because of their nation. On and on. Mm. It's always been like that. We might come back to that in a moment. There's a question I want to ask you. Uh, in this, we had the call for proportionality, and then we call for pause for humanitarian purposes. Uh, and and uh, you know, we're both deploring atrocities against human beings. But I just wonder how much sympathy can be extended to the Palestinian people who have not only harboured perhaps sometimes at the point of a gun, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, they've not only harboured Hamas, they've voted for them, they've supported them. Yeah. Well, Can they really be uh, excused for blame for what they've helped no, bring on themselves? Or am I being unfair? Can. No, I don't think they can be. Um, the people of Gaza, let's just stick with the Gazans for now, People of Gaza voted in Hamas. Hamas came in and they killed their counterparts in the Palestinian Authority, shot them in the back and threw them off buildings. Um, today, Mahmoud Abbas, the um, leader of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, is showing total common cause with Hamas in Gaza. You want to say, <laughs> these are the people who would kill you, you, if they got near you, if they took over in the West Bank as they took over in Gaza. So again, the, the Hamas have no care for their fellow Palestinians. They treat their lives as nothing. The Israelis treat the lives of Palestinians much better than Hamas do. Um, that's a really important point that's overlooked. Just brushed aside. No, everything's brushed aside. That's there were 17 members of the Israeli parliament. Can't pronounce it. Knesset. Knesset. Uh, who were Arab. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Where, I mean, are, the, where are the Jews Arab embedded judges? In, in, in Arabic nations? Absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and, and let's get to the, the one, of the, one of the chants we've heard across our cities in recent weeks, from the river to the sea. Yeah. From the river to the sea means, and again, most people can't even point to it on a map, and many non-Muslims wouldn't know what they were talking about as they were saying that chant. But the river is the River Jordan, the sea is the Mediterranean. If so-called Palestine is from the river to the sea, uh, that means eradication of the Jewish state. Are there any Jews in Palestine? No. No, the Palestinian state will be Judenrein, to use Hitler's phrase. Um, Hamas have said that they will slaughter every last Jew. Their leader said it again only two days ago. Because they're victims. They're claiming to be victims. I thought the Jews so were the victims Hamas, after the Holocaust. Hamas, Hamas has said it will slaughter every last Jew. And the Palestinian Authority has said there can be no Jews in their state. So... If the world wants to create a Palestinian state, it will be a Nazi state in which no Jew is allowed to live. I'm not on board with that. So, so is this Israel's war or is it in fact our war as well? It's the world's war. It's a civilized world's war. It's a civilized world's war uh, for many reasons. One is... You know, we've had chants on the streets of London in recent days for Intifada. We've had Intifada in this country. We had it on our tubes and buses in 2005. We had it when a car bomb was placed outside a nightclub down the road from here in 2007. We had it when drummer Lee Rigby was beheaded in broad daylight in 2013 in London. We had it when a suicide bomber went into the Manchester Arena in 2017 and blew up 23 young girls with a suicide vest. We had Intifada on the streets of London, on Westminster Bridge, on Tower Bridge, on London Bridge, when we had people rushing across London Bridge with knives, shouting Allah Akbar again, this war cry, while slitting the throat of a pregnant woman. We've had Intifada on our streets. Anyone who thinks Intifada stops in Israel is a fool comes to Australia, Britain, and everywhere else too. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have to decide whether or not we have any courage to stand up for ourselves as a civilization. And if somebody says, we, our plan is to rid the world of Jews, as Hamas want to do, then I'm sorry, we have to tap into the same strength that our forefathers had and say, okay, our forefathers fought Nazism before, we will have to fight this Nazism. And we will see it off just as our forefathers saw off the earlier Nazism. Hamas and their friends are Nazis, and we'll have to get rid of them. And the Israelis are doing a very good job in the beginning of that, but everyone's going to have to join in. We cannot live with these people. We can't. Not because we don't want to, but because they cannot live with us. Something that arises out of what you've just said that strikes me, uh, and this would, I think, apply to uh, what's happening in Beijing as well. It seems that in these um, countries that are so hostile to the West, they're returning to their cultural wellsprings, or at mm. least many of their leaders are. So what you're actually seeing is a deep commitment uh, in uh, certain quarters of the Islamic world to their core beliefs, mm -hmm. and that's the way to rise to the top. In China, I'm told, they've all been told to go and do refresher courses recently, in Marx and... Yeah, just in case they missed anything first time round. Yeah, that's right. The subtleties of Marx yeah. and... So Marx. the way to get to the top 
is to embrace the wellsprings of the belief system that yeah. creates right. and, you know, the world that they live in. But in our world, in the West, and you've just referred to it, will we stand up like our forebears did to Nazism? You look at our world, um, look at what happened to Kate Forbes. She's a traditional Christian of conservative views and she's rejected from, from public office because she believes in the wellsprings of our civilization. Yes. Well, we despise who, our own civilization, I would put it to you. Absolutely. Or at least our elites do. Our elites do, for sure. So conviction will beat out. You know, this is a fight against profound conviction hmm. versus, I would suggest, a rejection of our convictions in our case. Yes. Is it as serious as that? Yeah, I mean, it's just to recap people, Kate Forbes, Scottish SMP member, who stood for leadership of the party, is a practising Christian with perfectly normal conservative Christian views. I say small c conservative, she's a member of SNP, as I said. We would have many political disagreements, I'm sure, uh, she and I. Uh, but she's a lovely woman uh, with a wonderful husband. And um, she simply said, well, my faith is not something I'm bringing into the office. But when she was questioned about things, she answered, Honestly. That doesn't seem very level-headed. Why not? They're all bringing their beliefs in. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, this, that separation of faith and mm. and uh, state may well erode again under these circumstances. Um, but she she was uh, derided for her Christian views. The man who ended up becoming first minister of Scotland, minister of Scotland, Hamza Yusuf, is a is a very openly practicing Muslim and had himself photographed on his first day in office with a group of other Muslims doing the uh, Islamic prayers in the First Minister's office, um, bending to Mecca. Uh, if Kate Forbes had become leader and promptly um, posted a photograph of her and some others uh, taking Holy Communion, I think it would have been an uproar. So why, was there, why would that have been the case, but no uproar for Hamza Yusuf doing the, the Islamic prayers in the office? Because we want everybody to have religious freedom except ourselves. We want to praise every tradition apart from our own. And we want to promote every belief system other than the one that got us here. That is madness. You know, in Australia, we have a premier who's just retired in Victoria. He's made Australia famous for having his police drag off uh, women in their pyjamas for, uh, you know. This is um, Andrew. Uh, Dan Andrews. Dan Andrews. That guy so castigated a very senior, and I have to say very decent, uh, even though he lost his job as CEO of the National Australia Bank after a hearing, but it wasn't corruption, it was, anyway, leave that aside. Uh, he took on a role uh, with a major football club in, 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 uh, uh, in Melbourne. It emerged that the church that he attended, many years before he actually was part of the congregation, had had uh, a sermon delivered which took the traditional view uh, on, um, on marriage uh, and a, a couple of other issues, totally in conformity with the Catholic Church. And he was called a loser and a bigot by the Catholic Premier of that state. Wow. By his own standards, he should have gone. But it was worse than that. He was then captured delivering a $5 million grant to an Islamic group. And he actually said, this is to allow for the spreading of the lovely words of the prophet. But the, pro the prophet's words weren't lovely. Well, it's the point of the very values. The very thing he was condemning, he drummed out, almost destroyed the life of an individual who went to a church, 
that five or six years before had put a traditional view, some activists had <coughs> turned the sermon up uh, and oh, that was bigoted, that was narrow-minded, that was hatred. Uh, and yet... Uh, I mean, may, maybe people are just incredibly ignorant. I think they probably are. Um, one of the interesting things about the difference between Christianity and Islam, by the way, we, ha we, have, a, we have an idiot political class in all of our countries that pretends that pretend sometimes for the sake just simply of interfaith dialogue, sometimes simply for the sake of fudging along and sometimes just because they don't know what they're talking about. They, they pretend that all religions are basically the same. And, uh, you know, you might Christ practice Christianity, I might practice uh, Islam and he might practice yoga. And it all comes out the same. It's not true. And if you want to know why it's not true, I give one example. The history of Christianity has been very bloody, not least in the country we're sitting in and in the continent. Uh, we had wars of religion for hundreds of years where people in Europe killed each other for different interpretations of what the Eucharist was. There was a madness in it. My late friend Jonathan Sachs said when he welcomed Ratzinger, Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, the, the Pope Benedict, to the UK, Sachs said, you know, peoples of Europe lost faith in God when they lost faith that the peoples of faith could live together. And there's a great amount of truth in that. But so the history of Christianity has been very bloody. I think all religions are. All history is bloody, by the way. But would the history of Christianity have been more bloody or less bloody if Jesus had been more like Muhammad? Um, if, any, if anyone doesn't know what I mean by that, let me give um, a couple of examples. The most obvious one is what is one of the greatest moments in Christian scripture, but the moment when Jesus has brought to him the woman who is caught in adultery. And what does Jesus say when the crowd wanted to stone her for her sins? He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the crowd go away. Now, in the Islamic tradition, a very, very similar thing happens when a woman is brought to Muhammad and he has her stoned. So, history of Christianity, more bloody or less bloody if Jesus was more like Muhammad? I think everyone would say, likely to be more bloody. Jesus himself, in the Christian traditions, in all the texts, um, I think would you agree only once really loses his temper? And that is when the money changes are in the temple and he overturns their tables. Because the house of God must not be polluted by the, in this way. Now you may say, that just goes to show that we too can lose our tempers occasionally. Well, maybe it does. Muhammad beheaded hundreds and hundreds of Jews with his own hand. History of Christianity more bloody or less bloody if Jesus had been more like Muhammad? More bloody. I can't help adding to that, if I may, though, that for all of what you say, it's obviously all true, but on balance, it's been the Christian-based societies that have been utterly realistic about human nature mm. and, and set up arrangements whereby we divide power, we break it up, we limit the time you can exercise it, and you exchange it at the point of a pencil. Mm based in a realistic view of man, dignity yeah. and worth, human failings. Yeah. Yes. It seems very different. I don't see 
an Islamic parallel? No, I mean, there are, there are enlightened traditions within Muslim, certain Muslim traditions, certain ones. They tend, by the way, to be highly uh, prejudiced against by other Muslims. I'm thinking of things like the Ahmadiyya community, certain branches of Sufi Islam, which have very admirable attitudes towards enlightenment and a sort of syncretic belief of their own. Um, but these are minority sects within Islam and are largely hated by other Muslims. Um, Islam is about subjugation to Allah. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why the Muslim world is as it is. The Christian world is, is as it is because of the legacy of Christianity. I mean, it's, it's from Christianity that we get the idea of rights. Why do I say that? Because even the framers of the European Constitution pretty much knew this. Certainly the framers of the UN Declaration on Human Rights knew this. Certainly the founding fathers of the United States knew this. That the reason why all men are regarded as equal is because all of mankind is created equal by God. And that there is, that people may be different in their lives, and we're all different in our lives, and you may be a, a car mechanic or a, a king, but that we're all the same. We're all the same in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Creator. Nobody to that extent has the ability to be, is, is by nature better or worse than anyone else. It's the adventure of their lives to try to be better. Um, but all of these ideas, like the, the dignity of the individual, these come from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And without them, we would be, you know, like China, or like the Islamic world, or like anywhere else. It would be, we would, if we had a different tradition in our past, we would be in a different place now. But this was our tradition. This is our tradition. And um, anyone who thinks that what I've just described is as water is to fish is making a vast category error. If I may make this observation, one of the things that has really struck me over the last decade, as, as there's been a lot of soul-searching in the West amongst leading thinkers, is that even people of no belief I mean, you know, I am plainly Christian in terms of my personal convictions. And one of the reasons, by the way, is that I think justice really matters. I don't think you can have love without justice. It's mm. impossible. So the people who have done these frightful things, I believe they want to be called to account one day. Otherwise, you're saying the lives of the people they've butchered are as nothing. Mm. There'll be no justice in this life for them. Mm. That's important for me personally. But that wasn't my real point. My real point was that there are a lot of people who don't personally believe have personally come to the view there's no God or they don't believe in the Christian God, mm. but are able to see intellectually mm. the unbelievable importance of Christianity to mm. what Churchill, I think, as a non-believer, would have called the benefits of civilizational Christianity. Mm. Mm. And that if we're not careful, if we continue denying that, we'll just be left with nothing, no wellspring, nothing to cling to, that's just narrow materialism. Mm. This, this idea that Western civilization is like a cut flower and you can look at it and enjoy it, but it's going to die. Yeah. So how do we make sure that it isn't a cut flower? And the answer to that is, of course, we find the seeds that planted the flowers and we reseed the land. We replant the flowers, the trees and the bushes of our culture and of our civilization. And that's what we should do. That will be part of the task ahead. And that doesn't mean 
the dogmatic re-Christianization, although some people might like to go that route, but it does mean a recognition of the wellsprings. And, you know, without that, nothing good can come. Without that, we will simply be a flower that withers and dies. So to uh, pick up that useful panel, which people can find, by the way, uh, Jordan Peterson interviewing me, um, Ayan Hersiali, mm. uh, and uh, Oz Guinness, and, and we'll put the strap line up for anybody who wants to look at it. Mm. Uh, but uh, I was reminded that a few years ago in Sydney, I witnessed a fascinating exchange between um, a, a former left-wing uh, Labor politician whom I have a huge regard for, um, Peter Baldwin. And he asked Ayan when she had written the book Infidel, why Islam needs a reformation now. Mm. He said, do you mean a reformation like the one that happened in Europe with Christianity? Because that was all about sola scripture, mm. go back to the source material. Mm -hmm. What happens if you do that <coughs> with Islam? And Ayan interrupted and said, you get ISIS. Yes. She's quite right. It's a pretty powerful point. She's quite right. Um, if Islam to have a kind of um, reformation uh, or a, a, a change, an updating, uh, would mean Muslims discard chunks of their tradition. Um, and uh, I see that as being unlikely. If they return to the source, yes, you get ISIS, you get Hamas. Yeah. Um, to, to, to come back to the realities of what we're now confronting, and you've been writing about this uh, immigration policy over the years, uh, I don't know what a coherent immigration policy for Western countries might look like. You might have an observation on that, but it hasn't been coherent for a long time. Nowhere more so, I would argue, than in America today mm. on their southern borders. So we have large numbers of barbarians inside our gates. That's the reality. There's, mm -hmm. I mean, look at France. Yep. They must be really nervous. They're, mind you, they're pretty tough. Yeah, they're they... police forces. But what might happen, in your view, if the situation in the Middle East escalates? What can we, are we going to have more, there I, I shouldn't probably say this, I don't want to sound alarmist, but we shouldn't forget 9-11. Who do we have in our midst now and what might they do? Well, we have, a, we have a, um, a crux point in my view coming up in the UK on the 11th of November when um, there is Muslim groups, Palestinian groups, pro-Hamas groups in the UK have announced what they call a million man march in this city on uh, Remembrance Day, on Armistice Day, uh, when they will again defile the cenotaph and the statues of our dead and our war leaders. And I believe that the British people will not take this lying down. I think that the police in the UK have failed by allowing people to march through our streets, past our monuments and holy places past Westminster Abbey and much more, chanting Allah Akbar and Jihad, Jihad. The police have protected the people doing that and have tried to arrest anyone who dislikes that. Is it their fault? The police, mm. yeah, yeah. Many of the policemen themselves are highly frustrated about this, I know that. But it's the advice that they have. Um, they don't want to be like the French police who run in and baton everyone over the head. Although, by the way, it's worth noting that the Republic in France has had the pre president banned protests and the protests went ahead. Very, very bad sign in the life of this Republic. But um, in the UK, 
Yeah, it's it's different. Our police force behave differently, and policing by consent, and all of these sorts of things. But clearly, they've lost control of the streets. Now, is it time to send in the army at some point? Probably yes. But if the army will not be sent in, then the public will have to go in, and the public will have to sort this out themselves. And it'll be very, very brutal. It'll be very brutal because there is no reason. The soul of England, the soul of Britain, is about to be trampled on very, very visibly by people who are gleeful in their trampling. And they have defaced and defiled all of our holy places. And I think I know that the British soul is awakening and stirring with rage at what these people are doing. These people came into our house. Many of them broke into our house illegally. Many of them were never wanted here. And they have come here. They have betrayed all of our attempts at hospitality. They've spat in our faces. And now they want to trample everything we have underfoot. No. No. Douglas, thank you for your thoughtfulness. Thank you for your courage. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.